This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you so much. You know, I, I really like these nine-minute sermons. I, I tend to be a little bit ADD and have a short attention span. So, I, and, and although I, we really miss Freddie T, and, and it's great to have him back today, but the nine-minute thing kind of works for me. I, I, I just out of curiosity, does anybody else actually time the guys when they're sitting out there? You, yeah, yeah, see, that was me. And my wife's all, what are you doing? Well, I was timing them to see if they're going to be there nine minutes. So don't time me today. I wondered when I got up here, yes, there's a timer here. And then apparently the musicians come out at eight minutes, like the, the Grammy Awards, when they're done with your speech, they start playing the music. So, so that's what's going to happen here. Well, again, I, I love what the guys have brought so far. Um, what I've learned, and hopefully what we've learned, and there's more than this, we learned that. God is love, that God is holy, and God is righteous and just. And, and as I go home and I, I think about these attributes of God, a problem became evident to me in that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. And I'm like, well, I'm a sinner. I, I am not holy and righteous. God, in his mercy, sent his son. The, the, the verse that we all know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Praise God for that. So, so when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't see our sin because our, our sin's been, been washed away by the blood of Christ. But I'm still a sinner. I, I, I'm still, I still sin. I still mess up all the time. And as, as I was praying about what to do with talking about God's mercy, the Lord brought me in, in a direction that I... I thought was odd um, to talk a little bit about the Lord's discipline as mercy. Well, how can that be? You see, when, when we sin, yes, our sins are forgiven. I, I, and this, this message is primarily for Christians. If you're not a believer today, you need to accept Jesus and, and you don't have this sin problem. Your, your sins are forgiven. But as a Christian... We, we still sin. We don't want to trample the, the, the grace of God. Jesus died for us. But when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid. See, sin in our lives separates us from God because God is holy and God is righteous. And when we sin, even as a Christian, I, I don't know about you, but in the middle of my sin, that's not the time I'm typically praying or talking to God or even want to hear about God because I'm doing my sin thing. And we all do that. God in his mercy has a way of, of drawing us back to him. I've been reading in the Old Testament 
in my devotions. And I read about the Hebrews, you know, God sent the, the plagues and freedom out of the bondage of Egypt. And they wandered around in the wilderness complaining, sinning. Oh, we'd be better off in Egypt. And then when they went to the promised land, they, they, would, they would run off to these other gods. They would, they would worship the, the gods of the, the surrounding countries and forsake the God that, that gave them these things. And what would happen? The Philistines or the Babylonians would come and they'd, they'd defeat them in battle. They'd take them away in captivity. And God's people would cry out, Lord, save us, save us. Lord, I've sinned. Well, see, this is exactly what I do. I, I, I don't live a perfect life. Yes, my sins are forgiven, but I run amok. And, and it's not big time, but I run amok. And, and God has a way of calling us back to him. And he does that through our, our discipline. You'd think God would get tired of us, just like in my devotions, he says, how long you know, will I suffer you people? The, the, the Jews wandering around in the wilderness and, and even during the judges and the kings, they would, you know, this king would be good and it'd follow the Lord and then the next king, no, they'd go off and they'd, they'd run amok and go worship other, other gods. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God never gets tired of you saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I, I, I blew it. You know, he never gets tired of that. Don't, 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 don't feel like, you know, I screwed up too much this time. I can't, I can't go back. No, God is always there waiting for you. So sometimes we need a nudge. Uh, my dad was a disciplinarian. Uh, he, uh, he would whoop my brothers and I when we deserved it. You know, the belt, the switch, hot wheel track, anybody else? Yeah, I, I don't recommend that at all. Um, uh, and he used to say, this is for your own good. And this is going to hurt me more than it hurt you. And I didn't understand these things until I had my own kids. And I wanted them to do the right things and grow up the right way. And after we were done, he would send us to our room. And that next morning when you came out, after you thought about what you did, and you go and you tell your daddy, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I love you. And, and, and he would put his arms around me and say, yeah, Jim, I, I love you too. That's why I did that. And I thought that was the greatest thing ever until I was a dad. And I had to punish my boys to get them to do right. And, and, and it was out of my love for them. But when, when, when your son learns the lesson and he comes and he hugs you and, and he appreciates that you look out for him, that's, you know, that, that's the way that God feels when we, when we stumble and we come back to him. And his mercies are new. I, I want to read something real quick out of Hebrews 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. In verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, why? 
for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems rather painful than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, God, through his discipline, is making us more like him. The Lord loves us. He loves us so much. He loves us just how we are, but he loves us too much to leave us this way. God is always working in our lives to make us more like him. If we claim to be a Christian, the true definition of Christian means Christ-like. That's how we become more like Christ, through, through his word. You gotta know who Christ is to, to, to wanna be like him. And when we step out of line, the Lord disciplines us. And through that discipline and through his loving mercy, he draws us back to himself. Never, never feel like you've gone too far that you can't say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and if we run amok, the Lord will, will, through our own sin usually, cause us to be in a position where we cry out, Lord, save me. And he will. Thank you. I was waiting for a song. Pastor Freddie failed to mention that both gyms are uh, exceedingly handsome and, um, and big, lovable teddy bears. So, I, I, so I'm here to talk about self-existence. Um, some, of, some of the characteristics of God are a little hard to understand, um, or at least hard to understand in human terms. Uh, as Jim and I were talking, the characteristics of God overlay one another. He's not one or the other or just one. He's all of those things. So they work in concert, uh, in unison. Really, the defining scriptures that um, determine the I am, and we use I am the, as a name, I am, I am, um, as the Defining scriptures of God's self-existence. Let's read those. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. 
I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. As these scriptures speak to us, it's not just speaking as God the Father speaking to us, but God as a whole speaking to us. Jesus is as much the I am as the Father is and as the Holy Spirit is. He is the I am. Honestly, I've wished for a better explanation from the scriptures at times of who is the I am. In this, the thing that springs from this for me as God is self-existent, it, that it brings hope. God will never leave us. He'll never divorce us. He'll never stop being exactly who he is. He is, I am, forever. And that can give us hope. That's the stability and the solidness that God is. One of my first revelations as a young Christian was, I was standing out in this place, it was very dark, I could see the Milky Way. And the revelation, it literally was a, a download from God that he is good and he's good forever. And I can put my hope in him. Who is the I am? It's all the explanation we get. It's really beyond explanation in a way. I feel even this morning as we speak, there's someone who doesn't believe in God. And I, what, I would just want to make a point. If we limit God to our ability to understand him, if we're not going to believe in a God simply because our mind can't conceive him, what, how arrogant of a thought can that be? In fact, if that's someone's attitude that I can't believe in a God that I can't understand, then you, in fact, have made yourself God in a very real sense. Beyond explanation, the only way to really start to get the characteristics of God is to begin to experience him. Um, it's arrogant for anyone else to say, I am who I am, but it's not arrogant for God to say because it's reality. And humility is tied to reality. Making a proper assessment of yourself. It's when we overassess or underassess ourselves that we step into pride. Let's be careful not to create God in our own image or our brain's ability. Let me run through some bullet points that kind of explain around what God is. One, he has no roots on his family tree. He's the root. But he is in our family tree. He breathed life and DNA into Adam hit from him. And he is in our family tree. He has no roots. Ephesians 3.14, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven is named and derives its name. He is in our family tree. Isn't that, isn't that great? He is self-existent and all creation exists only at his will. He holds it together with his power in every moment. It exists for him because he wants it so. He's independent he doesn't need anybody or anything, and that includes you, Terry. <laughs> he doesn't need us. If God needed us, he'd, he'd have fault. 
he, he would be insufficient. He needs nothing. And that includes us as well. Now, he's made an invitation to us. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But he doesn't need us. He's not lonely. He's not needy and he's not high maintenance. His power is found within himself and he is his own generator of that power. He wasn't wound up like this universe that we know and he's not winding down. The second law of thermodynamics do not apply to God. He relies on his own power and his creation relies on him in that power. Even his haters, even his haters are breathing his air. Even his haters. In, in this time, God is striving to bring even his haters into the family. And at his mercy, allowing them to live and breathe and enjoy his creation. If no one acknowledged God's lordship, it wouldn't change who he is for a minute. It's not arrogance on his part. He's invited us into relationship with him. He wants us to be like him and with him. Now, how are we like him in self-existence? He wants those things, those characteristics built into our lives. We exist in him. He needs nobody, but we need him and our our dependence is not misplaced. It's not weakness. It's an, it's an admitting of our weakness to place our dependence in him. If we don't think we are weak, that's another kind of arrogance. Our motives are, should be to please him for who he is, the I am, and because we love him, because he's lovable because he's good. So walk, 1 Corinthians uh, 1.10, so walk as a, in a manner that's worthy of the Lord for who he is, to be fully pleasing to him. We need to be transformed, not just informed. We can know all about who he is and not allow that to sink and steep and permeate us into our character to become. This is the expression of becoming Christ-like in who we are. We can know everything, but not be transformed in our spirit, in our character, in our soul. The person who knows everything about God and knows a lot about God, when they start to speak about God, but their character doesn't line up, with what they're saying are the kind of people that we roll our eyes at and go, here he goes again. I don't wanna be one of those people. I wanna be one of the people that Jesus oozes out of my pores, that out of my character, people know who I am. He is our judge. Like him who needs nobody, we also do not need the opinions of others to determine our value or our identity. Our value and our identity is placed only in the one who lives self-existent forever and is good. Amen? Amen.
where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on the cursed tree. Drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance sealed by heavy stone. Messiah still in all. Father, we cannot wait to get home with you, Father. 
We are so, so grateful for all the things that you do in our lives, Father. All the things you're doing that we don't see behind the scenes, Father. All the things that are so evident of your mercy and your grace and your understanding and your peace, Father. Father, we're so thankful for who you are. In Jesus' powerful and precious name, all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. Well, on vacation, I had the great privilege of visiting with my cousin who lived about an hour outside of Glacier National Park. If you've ever visited places like this, tourists kind of think it's funny as people who don't live near these amazing, epic, scenic uh, locations as we take it all in. Uh, I flew into Spokane and met a pastor buddy and we drove from Spokane over to Glacier. We stopped in, in uh, Montana, but on the way there, the beauty began to emerge. And so it's like, before we ever even got to Montana, I'm taking out my phone, I'm pulling over on the side of the road and I'm taking pictures because what I'm seeing is so beautiful. And tourists kind of think it's funny because they're like, you think that's beautiful. <laughs> Wait till you get a little closer, like a little closer to Glacier National Park. So here's a picture that I took on the way and that's beautiful. And it was like this whole little river creek was like stretching all across the road on the drive to Glacier. But as I got closer and closer, I, like I began, to, I began to go, whoa, I was taking pictures a little prematurely because the closer you get, the more beautiful the, scene, the scenery gets. The closer you get, the more amazed at the beauty. And so once you get into Glacier National Park and you begin to drive around, you begin to take in scenes like this. Look at this one. Now, I almost didn't even share this picture because as you know, the picture doesn't do it right. So it's like you behold such beauty and you take your camera out and you try to take a picture of it, but it's just like, yeah, this is just a shadow of being here in the moment. And as you continue to drive through Glacier, you eventually just began to put your phone away because you're beholding such beauty that you know a little device in your pocket is not gonna capture the vast wonders of what you see. And as I was looking at that, it made me think of Psalm 27 verse four. That's where I want you to turn in your Bibles. Real quickly, if you're new to the Bible, you can just open the Bible right up in the middle and that'll get you right in the book of Psalms. I want you to find chapter 7, verse 4. As you're turning to Psalm 27, verse 4, uh, I, I'm preaching on the beauty of God. I'm preaching on the attribute of the beauty of God. An attribute's like an adjective. It's the way we describe God. It's, it's who he is. And, and so I'm speaking on the beauty of God. And as you turn to Psalm 27 today, I, I want to define the beauty of God using Joseph Alexander's definition as loveliness desirableness, all that makes God an object of desire and affection to the believer. So essentially we understand the beauty of God to be what we call a summary attribute. And what that means is it's like when we take in all the other attributes of God, you've got the beauty of God. It's like when you pull together and understand the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the and the self-existence of God and the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God and you begin to see the beauty 
of God. Did you find your way to Psalm 27 verse 4? Just hold your Bible up if you're tracking with me. I want you to see in the sacred scriptures what David wrote. Look at this with me. He said, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Read that with me again. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The beauty of God was so captivating to David, he said, that's all I want. I'm only asking God for one thing. The beauty of God was so enamoring for David. He said, you can have all the rest of it. I just want one thing. It's the beauty of God. Something happened in David when he got a glimpse of the beauty of God. Something shifted in his desires. And he said, I only want one thing. One thing I'm asking of God. He said, you can have the car. You can have the promotion. You can have the girlfriend, you can have the scholarship, you can have the concert tickets, you can have that trip, you can have the perfect school schedule. I want the beauty of God, David said. You can have all the nice new clothes, you can have a boss that understands you, you can have a board that supports you, you can have less people gossiping about you, you can have a nest egg, you can have a great retirement, you can have pristine health. And David says, I'm only asking God for one thing, and it's that I may gaze upon his beauty. If you're familiar with the history of art, you know that during the Enlightenment, the late 1600s through the 1700s into the 1800s, you know that there were major shifts in the way people thought about the world, major shifts in the way people thought about art. So the standards of beauty began to dissolve in the way people thought about art. And as the value of individualism began to be emphasized, as it began to rise, it began to influence art in such a way that people were not as interested in displaying and discovering beauty, but rather in their individualism, they felt like they must find themselves through self-expression. And so as you trace through the history of art, what you see is that what used to be beautiful became shocking. The goal of art used to be to, to display beauty, and now the goal of art in our culture today is to see how shocking we can become because if people could shock you with their art, then, then essentially they're establishing their own identity it's self-expression. It's where individualism rules the day and things like beauty begin to fade. And for generations who do not know who they are, this leads to all kinds of gross and appalling art. As people are groping to try to figure out who they are, they must shock people to express themselves and to get people's attention and to establish an identity. And it seems to be everywhere. And we all seem to have drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid. And you can see this as one writer points out on 
Facebook comments on the night of the Super Bowl. As you see people responding to the Super Bowl halftime show. What you can see is that over years, over, over hundreds of years in our world and in our society, when there used to be an appetite and a discernment for beauty and that which is lovely, it has dissolved into radical, shocking self-expression. So what, used to, what we used to behold as beauty now is shocking self-expression and we've all been drinking the Kool-Aid. So you jump on Facebook after the Super Bowl and everybody is undiscerningly calling it awesome. And there's nothing lovely about it. We've lost our compass for beauty. Our, our ability to discern what is good and true and beautiful has been seared. And so we just get tossed to and fro by a culture that tries to tell us what is art and what is beautiful. And it's all shock. You, you see this as you jump on Instagram pages of the young generation that there's no discernment for what is beautiful, but that there's a groping to take hold of an identity and it's through their self-expression. And it's not their fault. We've not upheld a better, more beautiful standard. We've not discipled them in what is beautiful. We've not upheld what is lovely. We've not displayed what is good. So you've got younger generations trying to discover who they are and all they know to do is to take off their clothes to express themselves, to shock, groping for beauty. And there's hope. There's hope that bare bodies, pictures of bare bodies could turn to sunsets and pictures of of bare bodies could, could turn to vast mountain scenes. And shocking scenes on teenagers' Instagrams could turn to beautiful flowers. There's hope. And the hope is when teenagers and young adults and middle-aged adults and people of all ages begin to rediscover what beauty is as we get to know who God is. David said, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That David uses the term house and temple to describe the tabernacle. And David's longing was to come gathered with the people of God. And as he gathered with the people of God and encountered the presence of God, it was his expectation and longing that he was going to see the beauty of God. Friends, that is our hope, that we would gather as the people of God in this place, that we would exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we would fix our eyes on him. And as we in this place, Sunday after Sunday, Sunday, gaze upon the beauty of God as we discover the, the beauty of his holiness and the, the beauty of his love and the beauty of his mercy, that our compass for beauty will be recalibrated. That that, 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 that thing in us that has been seared, 
that ability to discern what is beautiful will be reopened and will begin to point at things and know what is lovely. And we will slow down because beauty does not show itself to those that are in a hurry. And we will come prepared in this place with an expectation that we're going to encounter the living God. We won't frivolously or casually come into this place to exalt King Jesus. But we will come like David said, no, I want to gaze upon the beauty of God. I'm not expecting just to high five my friends in this place. I'm expecting to encounter the transcendence of God and to be struck by the beauty of God. I'm expecting to for all those little idols and all those little gods to fall by the wayside as my gaze is fixed back upon that which is truly beautiful and my longing will be changed, my desires will be changed, my heart will be stirred and I'll be like, man, I just want to gaze upon the beauty of God. It's the only thing I really want. Like everything else can fall by the wayside. I just want one thing. That's what David was saying. I just want to gaze upon his beauty. In church, if you gaze upon his beauty in your private time, you're going to be able to see his beauty much better when you come into your public worship. If, if you don't walk with Jesus, spending time reading the Bible and spending time praying, then when you come in here, it's going to be like, it's going to be like you're at Glacier National Park and the fog is covering all the mountain peaks. Maybe you feel like that's the way your life is today. Maybe you feel like, man, as you're talking about God, I'm, I'm trying to understand. As you're talking about these great things about God, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to see and understand what you're saying. But I just feel like my whole spiritual vision is clouded. I have good news for you. Today you can turn to Jesus, the Son of God. You can trust him and you can begin to walk with him. And when you turn to Jesus and trust in him and walk with him, the fog begins to dissipate. And you get a glimpse, and all you want to do is gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It's so funny when you drive around a national park, tourists, like, tourists are like, would you put your camera away? We haven't even gotten there. <laughs> that little creek, we're not even there yet. Like, just put your camera away. And, and I want to say to you, church, this morning, there's more beauty in God to gaze upon than what you've seen. There's, there's grander views that God wants to show you of himself. There's more of God that he wants to reveal to you. He wants to open your eyes. He wants to drop your jaw in awe of his greatness. Listen, there is more for God for you. If you're a kid, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student, if you're a senior, it doesn't matter who, the, the Lord himself wants to reveal himself to you through the sacred scriptures in a real personal relationship. Listen, what did David say? Look at it with me. Verse 4, he said, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Many of you know my, my lungs have scar tissue from COVID pneumonia. But I was determined to see some of these sights in Glacier. Would you throw that second picture back up there real quick? It was a good little hike to get to this one. And I had to stop about six times <laughs> for like minutes at a time to get my breath, to breathe. And I wasn't sure if I was gonna make it to this vantage point. But can I tell you, I wanted to so bad because I heard it was beautiful. Listen, you may be brand new to Christianity, you may be brand new to God. What I want you to know 
is the living God, the one that made you and loves you, is beautiful. And in a relationship with him, you can begin to see beauty. That's what we're here this morning. We're seeking the beauty of God. We're going to come to the Lord's table, Holy Communion, and it's a meal that reminds us of Jesus' death. It's a meal that reminds us of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. It's, it's a meal that memorializes his death and awakens us to remember him. It reminds us of his great love. And I love Holy Communion because it helps us gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And here's how, here's how. We see the beauty of the Lord displayed because in the cross, we, we see strength being used to serve. In our world, strength is used to dominate. If you have strength, if you have power in the world that we live in, it's used to dominate, it's used to get your way. But in God's economy, strength was used to serve. Jesus was on the cross and when he was on the cross, he could have called down myriads of angels upon angels to take him off the cross, to free him and rescue him. They didn't take Jesus's life, he laid it down. In his strength, he laid it down to serve you and me. He laid it down to reconcile us to God. He laid it down to forgive us and wash us clean. You can be forgiven and you can know God personally because Jesus, the strong one, has served you through his sacrifice. Would you trust him today? Would you turn to him today? You'll begin to gaze beauty and it'll blow your mind for the rest of your life because he is the infinite God. So I'm gonna pray, and if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. You come at your own pace because beauty doesn't show itself to those that are in a hurry. If you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. You're at the right place. We just want you to consider this invitation to trust in Jesus, to receive his grace. So you just stay seated and ponder the fact that the infinite God loves you and he showed it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Oh God, help us to believe and help us to see your beauty. Lord, we pray that we might long for it the way David longed for it. That we might seek it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite those that are serving communion to make your way to the tables. There's two tables in the back, tables here at the front. You come as you're ready. You come. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.